Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around I strive to seek out those tales of true crime from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland that you may not know of, you may even less believe, but all that are true for your listening pastimes. Doing as such from my spare room in North Wales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. He's black and white and perpetually out like a light, unless it's meal times, of course, then you can't keep him down, and he's the most popular member of the podcast. Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat, is here as always. And also, as always, completing this mismatched pair are yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show so worthwhile to do, and that keeps me loving doing it. It means the world as always that you have done today, and I hope that as my words find you, then they find you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, I've wrapped Series 7. It was a bit earlier than I'd expected to, really. I did want a series finale, and I know I alluded to it in the second part of A Moment of Madness. But as I've explained in the show's Facebook group, the selection of tales that I chose for a possible finale When I come to proper research them, I was like, oh, well, that's a two-parter for sure. And so, rather than time tick away and me being as indecisive as ever, plus with all the mentality of Christmas that we have and chock-a-busy in work and everything like that, I decided to wrap it on the two-parter that we've recently had. I know it might not seem like a wrap-up to many, because I haven't waffled anywhere as near as much bollocks as I would like to, but I knew I had my end of series review to come before the new year, which I bring to you here. And so I've saved it all for that. Plus, as I've just said, with illnesses, extra work in the pension plan and the whole mental abandonment and running around like a blue ass fly that Christmas brings with it. I decided to start my break early and catch up with myself a bit. It's been a bit of a long year. So as I've done with the past couple of series then, I'll review my seventh series here and go back and look at the cases selected and covered within it. Now it will be a bit warts and all this because I'm not Rain Man and I will have to go back and look through and see exactly what I've done because remember to remember dates and gists and everything but I'm sat here with a nice glass of red, the Mog is sat right by my feet guarding me as he always does and I'll just kick back and go through the series episode by episode. If it does seem that I skim over some and that I just give the gist of the tale and I don't go into the full ins and outs and everything, I'm not going to go into full detail again because that's what the episodes themselves do. And if you haven't, then I'd love for you to go back and hear them for yourselves. So I started way back at the end of January then. Bloody hell, that seems a hell of a long way off now. I can't even remember who the Prime Minister was then, but I started back with a two-part tale, The Creature That Stalked the Cobbles, and the terrible tale of evil Andrew Longmire, or Andrew Barlow, as I believe he's known now, who brought fear to the northwest of England back in the early 1980s with a series of violent and horrific rapes that he committed often in the victim's own homes, and that earned him the title of Britain's Most Wanted. Now Longmire's is a name that I've long bandied around for a inclusion on the show, and his tale was always going to feature at some point, and what better way to open the series than with a bang like that. Now coincidentally, it was actually shared on the show's Facebook discussion group only the other day that he's looking to be possibly released next year. And if you've not heard the episodes that make up the tale of the creature that stalked the cobbles, then firstly, why ever not? 
And secondly, if you haven't, then I invite you to do so, and then you see if you think he should ever be released. Monstrously evil individual indeed. So next up after that, we had the 1989 shooting rampage of Robert Sartin, and shooter on a Sunday morning. And I've got to admit, his name wasn't one I was familiar with until I came across the tale while I was researching another one, and I couldn't get on it fast enough. Hungerford and Dunblane and Cumbria are familiar enough for their own tragic reasons. But the Whitley Bay shootings, that's proper carnage too. And it's unbelievable, firstly, that it's so unfamiliar. And secondly, that there was only a single casualty in it. It's just, you couldn't make it up. A terrible double tale of arson followed in the episode Hellfire and the horrific losses of mothers and children that each brought, all for the most pathetic of reasons, misguided rage and unfathomable revenge, and four individuals that are deservedly doing life now. Really, I believe me. Continuing on with the double tales, the same can be said for the individuals covered in the following episode, The Ripper and the Angel of Mercy. The former committed a simply foul crime up in Rochdale, and the latter, well, he'd been released to kill once again after committing a murder in Ormskirk years before, and the years inside had done absolutely bugger all to rehabilitate him. It really proved it. One absolute crazed individual indeed. An episode entitled Shattered Trust followed, where we went back to 2016 to hear of the callous murder of vulnerable adult Susan Whiting in the West Midlands. Now, the pair involved in this, it's just any crimes against children or the elderly or the vulnerable always particularly sicken and get to me, and this is no exception. What a monstrous individual indeed we're talking about here. And then the second two-parter of the series followed that, the April that changed Abigail, which covered the 2005 stabbing and paralysing of Abigail Witchells in Surrey. Now, it's a pretty in-depth tale, that was. It was, again, it was a case that I've long earmarked. Well, as I've gone on from writing from the first series and I was just grabbing absolutely everything, I've had a bit of time as I've got used to writing and recording the show to look back properly and think, yeah, I'll select that. Yeah, that'll come there. That will do for another episode. We'll have that there. And sometimes they really do just choose themselves. And Abigail's Tale came around. Plus, you've also got a look as well at if any of the other shows... Uh, they're all my friends, believe me. I they, they really are. But you always do look and think, oh, such such has covered that. I won't do that this week because it's a lot of work. And why would I for the same listeners to share? No one seems to have covered Abigail's tale, so I thought I'd get in there as well. And I got a two-part episode out of it. It is an in-depth tale, and it's a remarkable one that shows how people can overcome adversity and inability. Then came Understudy. Now, this is one of my favourite tales to have covered this series, the exploits of sex-mad Jennifer Cupid, who back in 1999 stabbed her lover's wife to death in Warrington. And it's a proper right tale, that one is. It's got shagging, it's got the theatre, it's got absolutely all sorts in it. It really is. You need to listen to it as well. Another sex-mad individual, Chef Peter Walner, who murdered his wife Melanie, followed in the episode Web of Lies, which again is a right tale, and it's worth a listen just to hear some of the whoppers that this absolute bell-end came out with. 
hence the title of the episode. I mean, this guy strung such a, well, a web of lies, that's why I called it that, but it's quite unbelievable. You have to listen to the episode to see what I mean. Next up came the first of what will going forward be a regular series feature, the Houses of Blood, butchered in the basement flat, which dealt with the terrible tale of Dean Lowe and the murder of his partner, Kirby Noden, in Marazion in Cornwall. Now, what an absolutely horrific tale. The, the scene must have just been, you can't even imagine it. It was just, there are some pictures online. I think I shared them on the show's Instagram page as well. And it's just, it's quite chilling. It puts you right there. And yeah, you think, oh, horrendous. No other word will suffice, horrendous. And it was followed by one of my favourite tales that I've ever done since I started The Enthusiast, The Devil's 007, the strange and hugely entertaining case of Derry Mannerin Knight, who managed to con thousands upon thousands out of rich, gullible, absolute bellends and just blew the lot on fast cars and faster women it's got mind control scepters it's got discs put in your head to alter your thoughts alters possessions satan it's got the full shebanger one absolutely fabulous tale it was a privilege to tell now a bit of a local one for me followed this it was one I actually got to go to the scene of, and I did share some videos up in the show's Facebook discussion group in an episode called Horror on the Horseshoe Pass, which dealt with the familicide, for want of a better word, suicide of Keith Young and the murder of his three children at a North Wales beauty spot back in 2004, where this doting father, I, I can't even use, no, I can't use that word, I'm so sorry, this, this monster... Um, got his three children and to spite his wife who wouldn't come back to him he turned a petrol lawnmower on in the car killed all three of them and himself but made his eldest child phone his mother to say goodbye and that's there's no monster is no other word is there absolutely horrendous what a terrible terrible tale and there is still a bench i think i did share it on the on the videos that i took from the scene but there is a bench there that still has a plaque to the three children and they still have a memorial garden as well. I was actually contacted by a member of the boy's family who had a bit of a go at me at first when I shared the picture of Keith Young on the show's Instagram page. They had a go at me saying, oh, I can't believe you're doing this. It's sick and everything. And I, saw, I messaged them back and said, have you actually listened to the episode? Because I agree with you that it's quite sick and it's terrible and tragic. Um, and to be fair to her, Within an hour, she'd come back to me and said, I have just listened, I'm sorry, and thank you so much for being so respectful. She was totally uh, very apologetic, and yes, she is actually keeping me updated on the status of the garden because it was being moved due to development, but yes, so, no, it proves sometimes people do reach out to you. As I've, as I've said before, as I did, um, as a member of Alison's family did when I did Thriller last year, Next up, we had a listener-written episode, The Vanishing, which covers the strange disappearance of Stephen Clark back in 1992, and which has been the subject of uh, a documentary by, he's not my favourite person on earth, self-titled investigator Mark Williams Thomas, who actually met with Stephen Clark's parents, who were arrested over on suspicion of his murder uh, a couple of years ago. 
and he seems convinced that they haven't done it and anything. It's it's a very strange. It's, with all episodes like that, because there's so many gaps in the story that you just don't know. You can only surmise about some things. It's a strange, it's a very strange tale anyway. It's worth listening to the episode more than anything. Then we had a reach into the show's Patreon back catalogue following with To Kill and Kill Again, which dealt with a case of double murder by the same individual, but years apart, and who should never really have had the opportunity to have committed at least the second killing. And the second kill, well, both of them were terrible. Both the first one dealt with the murder of a child, but the second one dealt with the murder of a mother and her child was left to stay in the house with her body and the tale, the scene, must have just been absolutely terrible. It's, again, worth a listen. Back on the two-parters after this, it was crime con time about around this time as well and I remember it being a bit delayed between parts because I was away at crime con, but the two-part episode Journey of Mayhem followed this, which detailed the rampage of Matthew Turden in Cardiff in 2012, who indiscriminately drove a white van around the streets of the Cardiff suburb of Ely, mowing down pedestrians at random, and, unbelievably, only killing one of them. It dealt with that, and it dealt with the failings in his previous psychiatric care to get to this it's a tragic tale all around it really is there's a lot of failings there but he's now where he should be for the rest of his life likely another tragic tale is there any others apart from tragic there really isn't apart from the devil's 007 where the the victims in that deserve what they get for being so bloody stupid but all these tales are tragic they really are i hope you know what i mean there the tragic tale of schoolgirl Nikki Conroy, who was murdered in Middlesbrough in 1994 in what should have been one of the safest places that there is, the school classroom, came next in Wilson Jinx and the carnage in Class E23. Now, a friend of mine had researched this case and had written it up, ready to go, about a couple of days before I published this. This is the problem that we have sometimes because... All, all the the show hosts, we're all friends, but none of us know what each is going to cover at the time. So sometimes you do cross, and yeah, that that's just how it goes. Sometimes it really is. I mean, I've been, for want of a better word, gazumped. Right, I've been gazumped sometimes, and I've gazumped people myself. I know I have, but what we have come to learn over time is that each of us have different takes on it. So, say if I've been gazumped by. Ben and Rosie or Adam or something like that, then I will still keep the research that I've done. I won't just discard it, but I'll do it in maybe a year or something like that. You know, you've got to leave a bit of time between them. Otherwise, why would people listen? So following that came the obsession of Mark Chilman, who was unable to accept that his former partner had moved on with her life and the drastic action that he took in Worcestershire in 2020 we looked at next in Lurker in the Layby. And this guy, there are a lot of cases that's quite familiar. People get under your skin and he could not accept that his part his former partner had moved on and was happy with somebody else. But the ludicrous story that he came out with to try and explain away evidence that glaringly pointed to him, you gotta listen to it, you just think, do you live in Cloud Cuckoo Land or what? 
Another double tale followed this, one of family annihilation this time in Not All Monsters Are Make-Believe, and it dealt with the terrible crimes of Peter Hall and Ian Peters. Now, both of these cases, they, they involved children, and, and they, were, they were both crimes that I've earmarked a long time ago. When I came across them, I thought, that's not familiar, and it should be because it's monstrous, and I've got to bring that to the show sometime. I can't put it any more than I've already said many times. Sometimes episodes choose themselves. It might be the frame of mind that I'm in or something might remind me to it, but they do choose themselves sometimes. Like a subconscious or an unconscious chooses them. And it was Peter Hall and Ian Peters' crimes. Now, one of them, one of them is still alive. One of them took his own life. And the one who's still alive, well, I hope prison time is hard, hard for him. I really do. Following this, we met another monstrous individual, Sharon Carr, in the episode Daughter of the Devil, who committed a murder of a 19-year-old hairdresser named Katie Ratcliffe when she was aged just 12. And it dealt with the investigation into Katie's murder, who, who at the time, because it was so close in dates and not that far in distance, was actually for a time considered to be the work of the same person responsible for the murder of Rachel Nickel. And, of course, it wasn't Napper whatsoever. We heard of how the crime was detected, how a totally random two years to the day incident in a school led detectives to solving the murder of Katie Ratcliffe. We heard of Carr's obsession with the crime, the diary entries, the things she'd done. Absolutely monstrous individual. Very, very disturbed and how dangerous she still is even today. She shows absolutely no likelihood of ever being released. She's too dangerous to. Another two tales from the early to mid-1980s followed this, The Gas Man and The Madman. Now, I said at the start of them that they may sound familiar to listeners because they are tales that many years ago now, I wrote for a different show before I even started doing The Enthusiast, and I decided to give my spin on them. They deal with, in order, the murder of a Bristol shopkeeper in 1985 and the murder of a newlywed couple well, I'll say newlywed couple, they'd be married about two years, in Braintree in 1980. Absolutely, well, they're just terrible crime. Well, all crimes are terrible, but these are just terrible. It's just senseless, they really are. And then it was time for the arc. Now, I'll discuss the Lost Boys in full shortly. Someone's daughter, someone's mum, dealt with the senseless killing of Chantel Taylor in Birkenhead in 2004. Chantel's killer was caught in connection with something totally different, the firebombing of a mosque in Birkenhead. And when he, was, when he was actually chased and arrested for that, during the search of his house, they found a poem, a letter, a document. It's not clear exactly what it was, but under his sink, which a few lines of which dealt with the murder of a sex worker. And because this guy was the same age as Chantel and he'd gone to the same school, they asked him about it and he admitted, yeah, I killed her. It deals with that. They've sadly never found Chantel's body and the mum, Jean, has never had, they've had like bits of DNA of the daughter to bury. That's, it's so sad, it really is. From that, from darkness does come light though and Jean Taylor has done remarkable things. Even her grandson, Chantel's son, 
remarkable thing for char for charity they've created charities they work tirelessly for charities now they're a remarkable family it's uh, it's all detailed in the episode and it was our traditional series monsters of episode next this time i chose a norfolk and two tales from the 1980s where we heard the tales of terence pocock who abducted two girls at sword point drove them incessantly around the country covering three or four counties raped one indecently assaulted the other then drove them somewhere else claiming that it was they were back where he'd abducted them from one by one took them from his car and then attempted to murder both and i mean like running them through with a sword he stabbed one through the throat one one was stabbed and it pierced her heart it was just absolutely incredible but both girls lived and they were able to identify him to the point before they got to hospital where within 36 hours the individual was arrested and confessed he's believed to be still serving life today and peter malowski another crazed individual who abducted two women over christmas 1986 periodically and subjected them to a campaign of rape and travel it was just un a crazy story and it resulted in him trying to take his own life but taking the life of a four-month-old baby girl horror beyond belief unbelievable then we came to the end of the series with a two-part episode a moment of madness which dealt with the brutal murder of 31 year old patricia o'toole in dublin in august 1991 by serving soldier sean courtney who is now released and has a family of his own again now he pleaded ptsd based on things that he'd seen in the lebanon for, for his crime he came out with some story about how she'd asked him for directions he said i'll show you in person next thing five hours later patricia is found dead naked miles away from where she was last seen he pleaded ptsd over some she'd said some remark to him at random he'd flipped punched her knocked her out panicked drove off to god knows where punched her again smashed her head in with a stone when she tried to escape and then panicked and decided oh must make this the work of look like the work of a sex killer took her clothes off and fled back to where she'd picked him up now i believe i'm an ex ex forces personnel myself and i know ptsd is a very very real thing i also know how much it can strike as it struck somebody very very close to me a few years back uh, while i'm not saying that courtney didn't have ptsd i'm saying that it was a cover-up to claim that he was making it look like a sex killing but I, because i believe very firmly that it was a sex killing and he was attempting to rape patricia yes i do but it is all in the episode anyway as i said at the start i'm not going to go over i'm going to skim over these things i'm not going back into them in full detail you have to listen to the episode yourselves so back then to the series arc i always leave this for the last at the review because it, it makes up the big chunk of the series this is like eight parts of it you know and back now to the lost boys which is certainly one of the most disturbing and heart-wrenching tales that I have ever covered and ever will cover, as well as one of the most difficult to research and write. In fact, I don't say this lightly, but it's up there with the Monster of Worcester or Keeley's or Sophie's tales for me. 
I knew the case incredibly well beforehand, and since I started doing these series arcs back in series 4 with the South Wales Slayer, well, I'm a bit of a reach back there, right? When I've been picking cases to deep dive, I'd always felt at the back of my mind that I wanted to cover this tale, and it had arc written all over it, because it simply isn't something you can do in a one or a two or who knows how many episodes. And it is just pure horror and heartbreak, isn't it? I remember discussing it with Jess Carter long before I even started writing it, as well as throughout writing it as well. We've talked quite a lot, me and Jess, and she agreed with me constantly that it is such an awful case. People like Cook are not the people that you want in your head. And the part of the Lost Boys that we collaborated on, Mark's story, well, it did disturb Jess greatly, I know it did, even though we both agree it's been our best collaboration to date. And yet, you put aside natural revulsion at what you find whilst you're researching, because these are three boys, and who knows how many more exactly there is, but three whose tales need to be told, no matter what. And so you just get in there and you do them justice, which I tried my absolute best to do. The Lost Boys worked out exactly as long as it needed to be, because Jason is apart, Barry's apart, Mark's apart, then you've got Operation Orchid, that's apart of course, the Brent Inquiry is the same, then you have to give some background on the monsters we're talking about here, then you've got to wrap it up, and do you know what, I could have probably carried on with it and looked at some other Lost Boys that I believe these individuals, or at least some who were connected with them, are responsible for, because there are undoubtedly others. But their time will come around, as I said in the wrap-up of the tale, at least once a series going forward, we will look at a lost boy. In the meantime, all we can do is keep fingers crossed that the powers that be don't grant Cook the parole he craves in the upcoming year, and he dies a lingering, hopefully painful death still behind bars, where he should have remained constantly since his conviction in 1989. And the rest of them, well, those that we know of, because the ripples of evil from this, they travel very far and wide. And undoubtedly, there are those who have never faced justice for their crimes connected with Cook and his lot. The rest of them still breathing. I hope life is hard for them. And when their time comes, I hope that they rot alongside the likes of Bailey, Smith, and all that. Evil beyond description, really. And the pictures of the three boys we know of, well, they're unforgettable images, aren't they? They're burned into my brain, certainly. And there then, that we have it, Series 7 in a nutshell. Once I've finished each series, I look back over the tales and think to myself, I'm proud to have covered the cases I have, and this series is no exception. It's been one of my favourites to have done. And this may sound strange, and I hope you know the context I say this in, but it is a privilege to tell some people's stories, and I think for myself personally, though I do my best with every tale, it's been my privilege to have told Jason, Barry and Mark's tales foremost. Now I'll take a couple of weeks free now, though I've already started prepping for Series 8, and you can expect me back very early in the new year for it, where I already have a plethora of ideas for cases, it's all sketched out already, but how true to that it will stay, I don't know. But I have made a start on it already, anyway. And now then, 
it's time for the waffle. I bet you thought you'd gotten away with it, eh? No, the most important part comes now. It's the thanks time. I'll start with my friends and colleagues in the true crime community. It's been a great year as ever, and thank you all so much for your support and your friendship. You all know who you are, and you all mean the world to me. Special thanks go out to friend of the show, Jess Carter, who as well as being my friend, is my sounding board also. And look out for me and Jess collaborating again next year. But the biggest, utmost thanks I can give are to each and every one of you listening. Because you make the show. It doesn't exist without you. Simple as. I've been doing this five years plus now. And still to me, I'm simply sharing my passion. And believe me, lost none of that. But it still humbles me that people tune in to listen to a dickhead and his cat talking tales of true crime and like it enough to keep tuning in and to even come and see me and some other hosts doing the show live. I cannot tell you how mind-bending and amazing that is. It can be a proper mountain sometimes doing a show like this and reading a kind word or somebody getting in touch, there's no better spur on than that. And I couldn't tell you the amount of times that's helped me. So you each rule and much love out to you all. I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. And rest assured, there are plenty, plenty more tales to come. Thank you all for helping make a great Series 7, which is, as always, dedicated to my dad, JD. Foster's open for you, mate. From myself and the Peaks, I wish each and every one of you and your loved ones all the very best for Christmas. I hope that it's a great one for you. And all the very best wishes for 2023 too. I should say as well before I go that if any of you want to get in touch to discuss any of the cases that we've covered throughout the series, throughout any series, or you have ideas for a case for a future episode, or you're interested in doing a listener-written episode, You can always get hold of me. I'm always happy to talk to anybody anywhere through any of the show's social media links or through the email. If you know where I live, come round to my house. You know, quite. (laughs) I shouldn't put things like that out there, really. But no, get in touch with me, please do, guys. I would love to hear from you. So with that, then, take care, all. Thanks very much for joining me. And because it's the absolute last one of the series, as we do traditionally, don't have nightmares. Do sleep well. Goodbye for now, and I'll speak to you soon, folks.